1984, the Los Angeles Times did a story about a horrible accident involving 48-year-old Regina Dolly Young on Disneyland's Matterhorn. One day, on the attraction, Regina fell out of her seat and was fatally trampled by an incoming bobsled. An analysis of the incident revealed that an unbuckled seatbelt was the main issue that could have brought about the accident. It is still unclear whether the seatbelt trouble was caused by a ride malfunction or something that Regina intentionally did, which some reports claim could have been done to help out her child who was also on the ride. What is clear is that while on the ride, Regina stood up as the bobsled sloped downward when there was another track overhead. This sudden drop flung Regina upward, causing her head to smash into the track up above, which threw her out of her sled onto the track it was riding on. When she landed, she was still alive but unconscious. But then about 30 seconds later, another bobsled came speeding along and ran her over. She was instantly killed and wound it up lodged in the structure so tightly that the track had to be taken apart to get her out. This accident became so notorious that the place where Regina died was coined Dolly's Dip based off her nickname. Ever since she died, it became evident that the ghost of Dolly started to haunt the Matterhorn. Many people reported that they frequently saw her ghost and heard its eerie wails throughout the attraction, specifically in a large cavernous area near the center of the ride. A former Matterhorn operator, Kristen, who worked at Disneyland from 1989 to 1995, stated she often felt a supernatural presence while at work. Kristen said in a Wonder Wisdom blog post, I worked on that ride for several years and I never saw her, but I sure did feel her. While working on the Matterhorn, Kristen was required to walk the ride every day after it closed to search for lost items, a task she dreaded greatly. Kristen stated, Every time I was lucky enough to get a track walking shift, I had an uneasy feeling, like someone was watching me. I was always convinced that it was Dolly, and so I would often say hi to her. The feeling was always the worst in the big cavern in the middle of the ride, and at Dolly's Dip. In fact, the work lights in the tunnel near Dolly's Dip always seemed to be burnt out. In six years, I don't think I ever saw those lights working. I hated running the track at the end of my shift, and I usually tried to get someone else to do it for me. Other staff just like Kristen reported similar experiences of feeling the presence of gazing eyes and a feeling of trepidation when they had to walk the track. A long time before Young's incident, in 1964, a 15-year-old boy named Mark Maples would also fall off the ride in a similar fashion. 
Maple's seatbelt also unbuckled during the ride, and he fell out of the sled and was critically injured. Just three days after this horrible accident, Maples died from his injuries. This incident is notoriously known as the first death to occur at Disneyland. Thankfully, Disneyland has taken the necessary steps afterward to replace the faulty equipment on the Matterhorn. However, they cannot change the fact that Dolly and Mark Maples lost their lives, or the haunting presence that now roams the entire roller coaster. Greg Mishka first posted his doll, Harold, on eBay back in 2004. Greg had been pursuing a career as a filmmaker at the time and was adamant to fully disclose the experiences he had with the doll to potential buyers. He explained that ever since he bought the doll from a flea market in Florida, his life had been turned upside down and flooded with bad luck. Greg's cat mysteriously died, his girlfriend broke up with him, and he would constantly have migraines. After he was told by a priest to burn Harold, Greg attempted to set the doll alight, but it simply wouldn't burn. Instead, the doll was put in a small wooden coffin, and Greg decided to store it in his basement. Unfortunately, he started to hear the voices of children playing in his basement. The eBay listing quickly gained a lot of traction. Many websites published articles discussing Greg and Harold. Forums would also discuss them, and at one point, the coast-to-coast -coast radio show hosted by Art Bell spoke about the doll. Suspicions surrounding Harold started to grow even more so when a video was uploaded to the internet. In this video, viewers can see the doll's arm and mouth moving. Greg claims that the doll spoke and said the word Harold, which is why he decided to give it that name. At first, Greg had hoped to just make a little extra cash from selling the doll. But with all the intention it was receiving, more and more bids were being made. As the eBay auction came to an end, the winning bid was roughly $700. The bidder, however, did not pay, and Greg was forced to repost a doll on eBay. Greg had a close friend, Kathy, who had befriended his older brother when they were children. Greg told her that the story he had been telling people about Harold was completely made up. However, this didn't discourage Kathy as her plan was to make the most out of the attention the doll received and sell it a few months later for even more money. Others have reported that this wasn't actually Kathy's intentions, rather that she wanted to restore the doll as part of a class project. To no surprise, Kathy won the second auction for Harold and paid $300. As soon as the doll was in Kathy's possession, she noticed 
how strange things started to get. It took just a few days before the strange events got to Kathy's head, and she put the doll in the closet. With no idea what to do in response to the strangeness, she put it out of her mind and didn't go near the doll for almost a year when she then decided to try and sell it. When Kathy was writing her eBay listing, she wrote that it wasn't a haunted doll at all. Instead, she believed it was cursed. At the end of the eBay auction, a man named Anthony Kanata was the winning bidder. He was a self-proclaimed paranormal investigator, and as much as Kathy wanted to rid herself of the cursed doll... She was concerned for Anthony. At one point, she even offered to pay him back, but Anthony insisted that a deal is a deal. He was without a doubt very interested in finding out the truth behind Harold. In his future book, he would go on to detail what he found out about the doll, as well as other haunted items he'd purchased from eBay. When Anthony got his hands on the doll, the first thing he did was grab his EMF detector. He had hoped that doing this would detect a paranormal presence early on, but the meter's needle remained still. This didn't discourage the aspiring author. He then attempted to record an EVP, but again, he was disappointed. The recording was silent and Anthony didn't hear anything solid to write about, but he was still hopeful that he could write about the doll. Even though Anthony's testing didn't show any results at all, he didn't take any risk. Putting the doll back in the box, along with holy water and a crucifix, Anthony closed the box and put it away. Just a few days later, he took the doll with him, to his friend April, a psychometrist, and instinctively recorded the session. It was this recording that made him realize that the doll is actually cursed. As Anthony played the recordings, he heard an unnatural voice shout, Shut up, bitch! Which was followed with, I'm going to kill you, bitch! With growling in between. Shocked and uncertain, Anthony didn't know what to do next. Every medium he contacted would turn him away. And with nowhere else to turn, he put Harold back in a box and then into a storage container. This was in 2005. And in 2013, he decided to revisit his old investigation. One of the first things Anthony did was take photos of Harold and post them online. This resulted in endless stories being sent to him. After looking at the photos, some people would get dizzy. Others would be hit by migraines. And there were a few reports of people waking up and seeing the doll lurking in the shadows of their bedrooms. Anthony was invited to explain his story on Darkness Radio, 
which would lead to him being introduced to one of the production teams that are involved with the Travel Channel. In particular, the team that produced Ghost Adventures, who asked Anthony to bring the doll to an island bordering Mexico City. An island known as La Isla de las Muñecas, or for English listeners, Island of the Dolls. On this island are hundreds of creepy dolls, all hanging from trees. Because it was clear to Anthony, he warned the producers that the doll's left arm was very damaged and that it shouldn't be hung from the tree. Zach Baggins, the show's host, was carrying the doll for the first time, and later that day was surprised to find three bruises on its left arm. Strangely enough, these bruises looked like a child's fingerprints. Concerned, the production team got in touch with a nearby psychic medium that quickly confirmed that Harold was a haunted doll. During the session, she revealed that several souls were trapped in the doll, including a very mentally unstable woman who was willing to cause physical harm to anyone who approached or picked up the doll. A few months later, the show aired and explored Harold's story. Anthony soon found himself being overwhelmed with stories from people who had been affected by the doll simply by watching Ghost Adventures. They claimed to have unbearable headaches, a sense of uneasiness, and some felt that Harold was watching over them. Similar to when he put up the picture of Harold a few months before. So, after all this, we can only wonder, was Greg Mishka lying about his story being a hoax simply because he thought nobody would believe him? Or maybe Greg was truthful and the doll was cursed as it was passed between owners. The only thing for sure is that Harold is definitely cursed and haunted. And with all these claims surrounding the doll, approaching with caution would be an understatement. In 1987, a Metropolitan policeman in London quit his job of four years in order to move closer to his wife's family. The man went by the fictitious name Philip Spencer, and that year, he moved to the West Yorkshire area of Ilkley Moor with his wife and child. Later that year, on the morning of December 1st, at around 7.15 a.m., Spencer went out on a walk to visit his in-laws. It was particularly dreary and overcast that morning, and Spencer would have to cross the Ilkley Moor to reach his destination. Spencer had heard tales of mysterious lights that had been seen around Ilkley Moor, so he brought along his camera just in case. He also took his compass with him, to help with navigating through the early day fog. It had been a few months since Spencer started living there, 
so he prepared for any sudden mist or rain, which was characteristic of the area. As he traveled through the moor, Spencer decided to take a shortcut, which led him up a steep slope and past a group of trees. When he got close to the trees, he noticed a barely audible humming noise that he assumed came from an unseen aircraft above the fog. Unexpectedly, something darted past Spencer's field of vision, and he turned to check it out. At about 30 feet away, Spencer saw a small green creature that was around 4 feet tall. The creature proceeded speedily through the trees, and the bewildered Spencer shouted, Hey! at it, expecting to figure out its identity. In response, the little being turned towards him and waved. It was then that Spencer remembered his camera, and he swiftly took it out and photographed the creature. The creature then continued onward up a slope that led to a quarry at its summit. Spencer on impulse followed the peculiar being, curious to find out more about it. As he neared the end of the path, he suddenly froze in astonishment at what appeared in front of him. Spencer observed a large silver object that rose from the moor. It looked like two saucers conjoined at the edges with a dome top. On top of the dome, there was a little white cube with a pattern of holes carved into it. Spencer then noticed the humming sound he heard earlier was coming from the craft and now blared loudly around him. Although an extraordinary sight, the shock of everything prevented him from capturing a photo before the object disappeared into the sky. Everything became quiet and the fog cleared up in the area and Spencer was left alone and disconcerted. Spencer decided against going to his in-law's house and instead headed towards the nearest village, Minston, a 30-minute walk away. As Spencer made his way to Minston, he realized his compass now pointed south instead of north. When Spencer reached Minston, it was lively and full of people, which surprised him since it was so early. When Spencer checked the town hall clock, it read 10 a.m., two hours ahead of the time on his watch. A panic overcame Spencer as he began to question his own sanity. He wondered what really occurred in Ilkley Moor and why he had two hours of time unaccounted for. These questions led him to the town of Kaylee, the nearest place he would be able to process the film in his camera. After developing his film, he would realize that what he saw was real. Spencer now had photo evidence of the little green creature he ran into in the moor and felt it was important enough to investigate. Spencer sent a letter to Jenny Randalls, a well-known UFO specialist in the United Kingdom, describing everything he had experienced 
she placed him in contact with Peter Hoff, a UFO researcher. Hoff and Spencer agreed to research this incident as best as they could. Despite Hoff believing the case was too good to be true, after he met Spencer, he saw that he was not after fame and fortune and perceived him to be an honest man. Due to the fact that Spencer wanted to remain anonymous, Hoff suggested he be referred to by the pseudonym Philip Spencer. Around six weeks after the investigation had begun, Spencer received an unanticipated visit from two men claiming to be officers of the Royal Air Force Intelligence. The men were middle-aged and wore black suits and humorously introduced themselves as Jefferson and Davis upon flashing their IDs. Although the one-named IDs were a bit weird, Spencer did not suspect any foul play. So he invited the men in and sat down with them to have a chat. The agent named Jefferson explained to Spencer that they wanted to discuss the incident at Ilkley Moor. This shocked Spencer, because he had only told four people about his experience at the moor, and none of them had anything to do with the government. Both agents were well informed about the specific details of the Ilkley Moor case, and also had numerous questions for Spencer. They stated that their main objective was to recover the picture taken at the moor. Unfortunately, Spencer reported that he had already gave the photograph to Hoff and that it was no longer in his possession. His guests became visibly upset by this news and immediately left his residence. Spencer could not figure out how the officers knew about the photograph. As far as he was concerned, his wife, Jenny Randalls, Peter Hoff, and Arthur Tomlinson, a researcher working with Hoff, were the only ones who knew about it. Hoff later contacted the Royal Air Force Intelligence and asked about Jefferson and Davis. However, he was informed that neither worked there, and no one from their institution was sent to speak with Spencer. As for the photograph, the photograph of the green being was the first thing inspected throughout the process of the investigation. It was sent to a wildlife photography expert who confirmed that the creature was not of any known animal. But whether or not the figure was moving could not be deduced. They could confirm that the entity was about four and a half feet tall. The picture was then sent to Kodak Laboratories and Hemel Hempstead. Peter Southerst analyzed the photo and concluded that it was developed from a first exposure negative and was not tempered with in any way. He believed the creature was part of the original photograph and not superimposed. This unfortunately did not give any insight into the identity of the figure or its authenticity. The photo was also sent to Dr. Bruce Maccabee, an optical physicist with the United States Navy for computer analysis. 
McAbee explained that the slow film speed used to capture in low light conditions made the film too grainy to properly test. He stated, I had great hopes that this case would prove definite. Sadly, circumstances prevented from being so, reported McAbee. All in all, the photograph of the alien creature is still one of the only few that researchers considered legitimate. Hoff also looked into Spencer's changed compass. It was clear that the compass would need to be exposed to a strong magnetic field in order to flip north into south. However, a magnetic resonance scanner could replicate this effect, and no one could prove whether or not the change happened while in the moor, or if it was something Spencer could have done himself prior to the event. Hoff continued by testing the scene of the occurrence for radiation, but none was found. He also had Spencer see a psychologist, who judged that he was telling the truth as far as he knew. Not long after the incident, Spencer reported to Hoff that he had started having obscure, starry dreams. He also was unsure of what had happened during the two hours of missing time. In an attempt to reveal the truth, Hoff subjected Spencer to regressive hypnosis. Dr. Jim Singleton conducted the hypnosis at Arthur Tomlinson's home on March 16, 1988. Also in attendance was Peter Hoff and Matthew Hill, his journalist friend that operated the three tape recorders. During the hypnotic regression, Spencer revealed that he remembered walking through the moor where he spotted a small green creature but then found himself paralyzed. He began to levitate a few feet off the ground and the green being started reeling him in like a fish caught on a hook. They both went into a cube-topped flying saucer. And the next thing Spencer knew, he was laying on a table in what seemed to be a medical room. He remembered clearly hearing a voice in his head telling him not to be afraid. The creatures, now numerous, then began medical experimentations on Spencer, all conducted through his nose. After that, took Spencer on a tour of their ship. During this, he got a better look at them. They were about four feet tall as well, green-skinned, with huge three-fingered hands. They also had V-shaped feet, with two enormous toes, no nose, and a slit mouth. He mentioned their big eyes, but did not describe their color. As they continued on their tour, they passed a porthole, and when Spencer looked through it, he realized he was in space looking down at Earth. They then arrived in a room with a metallic ball. It was then that his camera and compass started to float away from him. UFO enthusiasts believe that this is when Spencer's compass changed. Then, the aliens brought Spencer to their media room and showed him two movies. The first one 
depicted a catastrophe that resulted in Earth's demise. The aliens explained that this would happen if humans continued to live without changing their ways. Oddly enough, Spencer refused to reveal the contents of the second movie. The aliens left a strong impression on him that the information related to it was too important to be disclosed. They then dropped him off back in the moor, and that was when Spencer took the photograph of the alien waving goodbye. To sum it all up, whether you accept the evidence or lack of evidence, no one can say for sure what really happened that day. Many experts were involved in this thorough investigation, and yet, no concrete conclusion was discovered. Whatever did occur must have been awfully strange to end up leading to all the events in this story. Let me know in the comment section if you think this story is true or not and why.